Michael Washburn is the Director of Programs at the New York Council for the Humanities and a writer whose work has appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times Book Review, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and Book Forum. I talk with Mike about his book on Tom Petty's Southern Accents, which was published as a part of our 33 and a Third series. In this episode, we will discuss a legendary rock star, his attempt to create an album that embodied the American South, and the criticism he's received since its release. Washburn explores the history behind Southern accents and examines how the record both grew out of and reinforced flawed assumptions about Southern culture and the lost cause of the Confederacy. Take a listen. So today I'm here with Michael Washburn, the author of Southern Accents. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, I, I'm a big Tom Petty fan, but I didn't really know anything Uh-oh. about... You know, no, it's okay. Actually, I really appreciated your take on it just as a preface. Um, I not... Yeah, I, I guess I'm not enough of a fan to like really have known much about Southern Accents or really the context behind it. So yeah. I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed reading this and, and well was also saddened to hear certain, <laughs> learn certain things about yeah. the, the making of the yeah. album. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, just getting started, why did you decide to write a book about Southern accents? It's really funny. Everyone asked me that question. Like when I tell them I'm writing a book about Tom, they're like, oh, great. What? And I say Southern accents. And the next question is why? <laughs> Everyone assuming that I would be writing about something like uh, Dan the Torpedoes or Wildflowers. And even when I contacted Petty's camp for interviews, they said, what book? And when I told them, they said, oh, really? <laughs> I think he had he probably had interview fatigue about these other records. Um, and there's a number of reasons. And I think that in increasing complexity, perhaps, and that might jibber-jabber on a little bit too long about this, so feel free to cut me off. But I also think, like, the why is the reason the book is at all interesting. Mm-hmm. So first off, I think that just sort of as a general thing, it's a lot, it's a lot of times more fun to think about things, to think about frailty than it is to think about perfection. This deeply flawed album, which was supposed to be, at least in my argument, his uh, attempt at incredible sort of an incredible artistic statement after a very solid career of records that, you know, held together really well, but had not really made a concerted thematic, thematic effort. That's what he was trying to do in this record. And it just sort of blew up in manifold ways. And so that's interesting. But I also think that the way that it blew up and what it sort of tells us about the way that... Um, certain perversions of historical thinking within and about the South and uh, the way that sort of, and and the Civil War, and the way that sort of still marbles a lot of contemporary culture and uh, a lot of sort of thinking about white Southern identity um, within the South are things that are, you can access through this record to some extent. Um, Mm -hmm. And then finally, I think that it was really interesting to write about this record because you know, not to reveal too much, but there's a huge sort of Confederate imagery. The iconography of the Confederacy is a large part of the records, a large part of the book. But in the end, Petty came out of the woodwork years after this record and offered what I thought was an incredibly sincere celebrity mea copa after Dylan Roof shot up the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. I keep telling myself I want to stop saying that man's name. I feel like he doesn't need to have his name said. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that person. Um and I think that, you know, that's something that is rare. Like, it's rare that people just come out of nowhere and apologize for something that people aren't tagging them on. Mm. And I think that all these things sort of together, in, a, in effect, end up, and what I think the book is largely about, 
implicitly is sort of about the mistakes that we make and how we can learn about ourselves by learning about our country and then how we can atone for or address or apologize or rectify those mistakes. So I think all that's kind of wrapped up in the record. I also think that knows a lot of stories about cocaine and rock and roll. Totally. And, you know, like, it's also a rock and roll story, you know, broken hands and things like that. And so there's a couple of different registers that you can approach in the answer to that question, if that makes sense. Yeah, I actually enjoyed the first part of the the um, the book quite a bit, the whole process of them uh, writing the songs, because I feel like you just interjected every other sentence with, well, you know, they were on cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you punched funny. a wall, but they were on coke. <laughs> in an earlier draft, I just had a section just about Ben Tench's cocaine stories, the keyboard <laughs> player for the Heartbreakers, who was incredibly forthright about his previous struggles with substance abuse. Um, but yeah, it's ridiculous the mm. amount of cocaine that was on this record. Too. Right. Yeah. Um, just for a little bit of background, I mean, what has been written about Southern accents up until this point? And, you know, what justifies writing this book in the first place? <laughs> Some people would probably say there was no justification. Uh, there hadn't been a lot written about Southern accents specifically. Mm-hmm. There have been Warren Zanes, who wrote Dusty in Memphis, which I think is an incredible book. Um, he was Petty's hand-selected authorized biographer, and he published uh, a book called Petty several years back, which mentions a little bit of the Southern accent story, particularly the kind of, um, a couple of the origin stories of the record, Mm -hmm. a little bit about the recording and the hand-breaking. He glosses over the Confederate imagery basically in one sentence. Um, There are two unauthorized biographies which mm. similarly really sort of gloss over that record. And I think probably because people just aren't interested in that much in, in that era of his career. So really not a whole lot has been written about it. Um, there have been, there were pieces after he died and there were pieces after um, he made the apology in Rolling Stone in 2015, but not really a sustained engagement with it. Um, I think that it was, I mean, it is possible that <laughs> there was no reason to write it. I mean, I think one of the reasons that I found it compelling to write about and um, as I actually say in the text, I signed the contract right before, right after uh, Donald Trump's election. So right. a lot of stuff that's been bubbling up in the headlines happened after I signed the contract. And I'd already been thinking along the lines of the book. But I think that why it's important to resurrect this particular artifact in the context that I do is because the stuff that I hope to like, discuss in the context of the record isn't usually attributed to a dude like Petty. Right. So in a positive way, like one can say, well, of course you can write a book about Bruce Springsteen. Of course you can write a book about Bob Dylan. And they are in many times referencing, you know, they're extolling blue collar working class culture right. or they're sort of playing mythically poetic and drawing on the American legend and myth. And people wouldn't give you any grief about that at all, about that at all. They're like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. But for Petty, I think it's interesting in this record in particular, because all that stuff is still informing him, even though he was more or less unaware of the fact that that was what it was informing the decisions he makes. Right. Right. It's not so much that I think there was a necessary timeliness to writing about this record right now, but I think that it's an interesting record to look at for things that are always ever present or always already present in the culture that have been given a lot more sort of full throated, um, I don't know, denunciation, but as well as a, a claim or something in the last several years since I signed the contract. If right. No, so it I makes, spun off in the weeds there for a second. No, know. it makes absolute sense. I mean, I think it's really interesting that you bring it to this moment with things like Charlottesville. Like, because I think one of the arguments that you're trying to drive home in this was whether Petty realized it or not, he was invoking a white supremacist narrative about yes. the South that constituted Southern culture. Yes. Um, do you want to expand upon that? Yeah, there's there's two levels of critique of record of Petty in the record along those lines in the book, and the first is that. 
for those listeners who don't know the record, Southern Accents was Petty's uh, attempt to write and uh, and record a concept album about the American South. Yeah. How thorough and comprehensive that thematic ambition was is discussed in the book. And it's also debatable. But um, one thing that just strikes me as incredibly insane is that he tried to write and well, he did write and then record a concept record about the American South that has absolutely no mention of African-American culture or no mention of African-American people. That right there is just problematic if someone's trying to make some claims about the South, right? Particularly from, you know, rock and roll lineage. But then furthermore, both sort of in the lyrical content of the record and also in the trappings of the tour where he literally shrouded himself in the battle flag of the Confederacy, he then nailed home this sort of... Uh, I don't know, almost owed this like incredible celebration of sort of lost cause thinking about the South where mm. much of what is wrong with Southern culture isn't really the fault of Southern culture. It's the fallout from the rapacious North and the way that the war of Northern aggression ended up delivering terrible and unjustified violence on the South. There's other people who thought a lot more deeply and could probably, mm. I'll probably knock the edges off a lot of the history just then, but, um, that's, I think, what is going on in this record. And I'm not saying that Petty... I did a Q&A with the LA Review of Books, and uh, a lot of people didn't read that, or they didn't read to the end of it, or they only read the headline, where they thought I was just trying to say that Petty wasn't a valid neo-Confederate. And that mm-hmm. isn't the point. That's actually not the point. The point is right. that, you know, as I say in the, in the book, for a guy born in the 50s and grew up in North Florida, it would almost be someone today not knowing Mickey Mouse. Right. It'd be a sort of superhuman effort to not be influenced or to have your understanding of American history and your culture and your identity informed by the very successful and longstanding PR campaign, (laughs) you know, from from the Confederacy, right? (laughs) That's a great way to put it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you sort of implicate yourself in that, at least at the end, where, you know, you grew up in the South. Yeah. And you said... Growing up in the South, Confederate heritage is just so pervasive that you just don't even see it. You don't see it on this deeper level or you're not taught to engage with it on this deeper level of, well, okay, this is a symbol of slavery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty deep. I mean, you know, some textbooks still sort of put forward the lost cause understandings, right? Or, you know, it's in things like Aunt Jemima. Right. All these things are sort of trappings and, and vestigial remnants of the lost cause that persist in the culture. And I was part of that, too. You know, it's it, it's as silly as something like the Dukes of Hazard, mm-hmm. but it's also as serious as someone like my father, who was not at all a Confederate apologist. And for a man who was born in 1923, an incredibly progressive person, um, telling me stories about how, you know, about Lee's noble appearance at Appomattox Courthouse when he surrendered to Grant. These things which are sort of baked into the self-understanding about the nobility of the South and the status quo of the South, I think, which Mm -hmm. is really the bigger issue, right? Um, People are, I think a lot of folks, a lot of white folk in the South would probably sign on to the statement that uh, what would the South be without the Confederacy without even thinking about that in a critical way. And I Mm -hmm. think that I was somewhat on that path for a while. You know, I think a lot of folks down there are like that. Right. Um, of course, someone might argue that I'm not really from the South because I'm from Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, being born and bred in Brooklyn, that's Southern enough okay. for me. <laughs> well, as long as I'm not called Midwestern. Right? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I wouldn't consider Kentucky Midwestern. Who considers Kentucky Midwestern? Yeah, a lot of people. Oh, I, I guess the regions are all kind of arbitrary, but yeah, that seems yeah. pretty Southern to me. It's bluegrass. It, it is bluegrass and it's bourbon. Exactly. It is horse racing. That's very Southern. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
So I think another point that you try to drive home, you're not necessarily, you're, as you said already in this interview, Petty spent so much of his later life trying to apologize yeah. for this album. I mean, so he was clearly not directly trying to write an album or like an overtly racist album uplifting Confederate imagery. Right. As a huge Petty fan, what was your relationship diving into this? Like, what was your... How did you react to him writing an album that seemed kind of half-baked about well, these ideas? I'm glad you, well, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that question, but it also prompts me to add one more thing to your first question. And what my initial attraction to the record was when I was thinking about it is that there's basically two petties, right? Mm-hmm. There's the free-fallen Southern Californian petty, and there's the petty of the 70s. And it seems to me that the fulcrum of that is this record, right? And I make an argument in the book and, you know, everything's an argument, right? People could disagree. But I think that um, basically Full Moon Fever and even latching so closely onto the dudes and the Wilburys, the travel Wilburys, was in many ways kind of a reaction, allergic reaction to the failure of Southern accents, right? I don't know that he spent so much time apologizing, right? He stopped playing the song Rebels, the opening track, mm-hmm. which I think is problematic, for several years. And when he started bringing it on stage again, he had shorn it of its... Um, sort of rah-rah rock and roll sheen and was playing a kind of uh, somberly as an acoustic number, which makes it a little more palatable. Um, and then he had all the video from the concert footage. There was a live concert um, film released after the record, and he had all the confederacy scrubbed from that for the most part. You can't really find that anywhere. Um, and then he came in 2015, he came up and, and issued the apology, but I don't think that he was really turning over in his grave so much as he realized as he had grown and developed more empathy I've lost the thread of your question. You're asking me how I dealt with him. Well, I guess just because I think you're a self-proclaimed massive petty fan and critical of his approach, at least at this time, critical of his approach to race politics in the South. I mean, I was, I guess to rephrase it, like, what was your reaction to seeing somebody that you really admire and love handle something so poorly? Yeah, it, it was, it was touch and go there for a little bit. You know, the, the most shocking thing was a guy named Tommy Steele who did the art direction for the record. Mm -hmm. And there's one way you can say, well, this was just a mess. And I am answering your question, although it might not sound like it. Um, And what is a way to say the record's a mess? Like for instance, even the cover, the cover is a Winslow Homer painting from 1865 that he painted soon after Lincoln was assassinated called the veteran sows a new field. And uh, why that's a mess is because it's a Northern soldier reaping wheat, which obviously is not a suffering crop. And if you go to the Met and look at it, or if you find larger images of it line, you can also see that he's got a, a Union jacket in the Union canteen. Mm-hmm. So at one level, you can say, wow, it's just a big mess, right? He tried to do something. He was too addled by cocaine. But then when I spoke to Tommy Steele, the art director for the record, um, he mentioned that Tom Petty had brought in his own Confederate flag and had urged that his own flag be used for sort of tour collateral on the tour book, etc., And that right there kind of strips away the innocence, right? Right. It's still a mistake, right? But then it suddenly felt like a motivated mistake. So there was a period where I felt real low, right? Um, but there was also no mystery that he had made this apology in 2015. He did that very mm-hmm. publicly. So that allowed me to kind of feel like I wasn't giving a bullhorn to some unreconstructed Southern viciousness, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. I still think I'm answering your question. No, it does yeah, make... Effectively. No, you are answering okay. my question. And also, it's it's hard because obviously, I mean, you call 
you have this quote, you said that Southern accents, well, actually it's the titular song that you're speaking mm. about specifically, but you know, you can say the same thing about the whole album is that Southern accents presents a brief folk sociology of American individualism that today has become a flavor of contemporary national acrimony. Yeah. I mean, it's, do you feel like in the context of um, Charlottesville that the alt-right or white nationalists have taken on his album as like a, a as a rally cry. Oh, I mean, I, how does it fit within the nexus of like Gone with the Wind or Birth of a Nation in this whole like narrative? I talking? think it totally fits into the lineage of Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind. I don't think it's a touchstone the way that some mm-hmm. of those artifacts have been. And I don't think this record has been picked up as a rallying cry. Um, one, because it's out of character for Petty to a large extent. It's also not a very good record, I would say, um, <laughs> aesthetically. Uh, it sounds very 80s. Um, I don't think that it, no, I don't think it's been picked up by the right. I think that if, I don't want to get, make too bold a claim here. It seems to me, yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say that the stuff that was sort of subterraneanly informing Petty's thinking has become a lot more on the surface in American culture these days. And it doesn't mm-hmm. need to pick up something like this, which would have best be coded, right? It seems to me like we're just one step away from people giving up the idea of even giving lip service to the notion of a melting pot. Now it's like, oh, I don't care about you, right? right. And let's just get on with it, right? So um, there's no pretense anymore. No, there's no pretense, <laughs> anymore, right? So uh, that's kind of far afield from the book. I don't know, mm. but I but I do not think that this record has been picked up as as anything that is emblematic of the larger project of the alt right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because they've got plenty of stuff that's directly saying that at this point. Absolutely. Unfortunately. Yeah. So scary. But I don't know. Like, I guess Michael Campbell called it a tragic comic, this whole album. And what's interesting about that is that this album had so much potential to actually embody a real kind of Southern accent, one that you've touched upon already. Um, But the way that it manifested is what you called it was sort of unfocused or decentralized. But in your head, if he could have the opportunity to do this over, not for you, not asking you to put words in Petty's mouth, but I guess in your vision, what would a more focused album about Southern accents be? Well, you can kind of cobble together what Petty's intention could have been. There's a lot of outtakes that um, were released on later on a box set called Playback, and there's sort of mm-hmm. bootlegs of other songs. Um, so the record is nine tracks, right? At, some, right? at one point, he had 26 songs recorded and it was going to be a double album. Within those nine tracks, I think you have three different aesthetic profiles. One, or like, there's sort of like five core songs which adhere to the Southern theme. Mm-hmm. Then there's three songs he did with Dave Stewart, one of which I'm counting twice, actually, because um, Don't Come Around Here No More, the, the biggest hit of his career almost, was a Dave Stewart song that straddles the line between some of the Dave Stewart gibberish and the core songs of the Southern Accents theme. And then a couple of songs would don't really fit any profile at all. They're kind of throwaways. Um, but you can take a bunch of other songs, including an incredible cover of a Wayne Kemp song that was written or recorded in 1965 by Conway Twitty called The Image of Me, which is the best thing the Heartbreakers ever recorded. You can pull all this stuff together and get an understanding for what the best version of Tom Petty's Southern Accents would have been, which still would have had this blindness to African-American culture. Um, So that's one way of answering your question, right? You can make a better album out of it, but it still is going Mm -hmm. to fail, I think, to be a real vital bit of commentary on Southern culture, at least in the way that he performed these things uncritically, right? Because there was was no self-understanding of these these, um, blind spots. 
he was trying to act like um, drawing inspiration from Randy Newman, who a couple years before, half a decade before, had released a record called Good Old Boys, which is crazy. I have no idea. It's crazy. Have you listened to those songs? No. Should I? Yes. <laughs> don't move that <laughs> And there's also a song he has called Sail Away, which sounds so beautiful and just feels like it's right out of the American soil. And then you listen to the lyrics and it's just staggering. Teddy or Newman? This is Newman. Okay. This is Newman. Uh, listen to Sail Away and listen to um, a song called Rednecks. And that's all you need to know. Like, this is the Pixar composer. Right? I know. And now Randy Newman, satire isn't a robust enough, a last enough word for him. Mm-hmm. Right. But there's something going on. Like, Randy's got a critical endeavor going on. Right. It's what he's, he's, he's trying to say something. Petty just didn't quite have those muscles and was trying inspiration from Newman to execute something that he couldn't pull off the way Newman could. What you mm-hmm. ended up with is this. So all that stuff still would have been there if the best songs cut for Southern Accents had been included on Southern Accents. What I think, I mean, I don't even know how one would really go about encompassing in a single record everything that would need to be said about the the history in contemporary American South, historical and contemporary American South. I think that one thing Petty could have done that wouldn't even have been a crazy idea. You know, there were... Folks from Muscle Shoals, there were a lot of great sort of African-American performers who had been a part of the development of rock and roll that were Southern-based, Southern-bred, that he could have recruited to play on the record. As a, for instance, there's a number of ways to address this, this fall, but he doesn't, right. you know, he doesn't. And it's an irony that you point out. I mean, the fact that his sound actually depends or is inspired by so much Black music. Yeah. But in the, the lyrics. And when he goes for outside, when he goes to outside um, help, he goes to Dave Stewart, who... Um, is the lesser half, lesser famous half of the Arrhythmics. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dave Stewart is... So like a British white guy. A British white guy <laughs> who's an incredible blues fetishist, but not at all a representative of you know, African-American or Southern culture. Just strange. Cocaine. Yeah, I was just going to say, maybe it was the cocaine. I mean, okay, so overall you think that this was kind of a failure of an album, but do you have a... Is that oh, fair to say? Head. Yes, I think it's... A, yeah, I thought that was a, I thought that was a really... Uh, uncontentious claim to say that this was a hobbled record and it wasn't anyone's favorite. But as I've been told in comment sections of pieces and at book events that I've done, it's some people really write hard for this record and take deep offense. One, just the mm-hmm. fact that I'm calling Petty into question, calling his judgment into question. But two, right. people really love this record and that's kind of baffling to me. Can you speak to that a little bit? What's the, I mean, cause you wrote this book right after he died or, yeah. you know, I was writing it when he died. You were writing it when he died. Um, So people, you know, he's in people's minds right now. But I mean, what was the reaction to this book when it first came out? Well, I assumed that everyone would either be outraged or bored, right? I thought Mm -hmm. the people that um, really loved Petty would be outraged because it's making some accusations. I thought the people that thought deeply about the way the Civil War still figures in American memory would be bored. I've been surprised in the latter there's been several academics who i don't know about the blues so they were thinking about adopting it for sort of undergraduate courses on civil war culture which is flattering i don't know if they did um, <laughs> and then the petty people have been very angry um a lot of the response a lot of them what i think misguided anger toward the book is because they are assuming that for some reason i don't know or don't mention that i intentionally do not mention that petty apologized for all this Mm-hmm. And that's not at all the case. In fact, that is the arc of the book, right? It's about mistakes and atoning for mistakes in as best as form. Well. 
Let's just leave it as best as one can. I don't really know what the best apology would be. So there's a lot of people that are angry about that. There's mm-hmm. been a lot of people that are like, oh, people who have no understanding of the economics of publishing. Well, you're just doing this to make a buck and you would have never done this if Petty was still alive. Which, um, you know, it's incorrect. Petty would agree to meet with me. Um, I wrote to his camp in February 2017. He died in October 2017. And uh, a woman named Mary Clouser, who had been working with in his camp in his management office for decades, said Tom is eager to talk about this book. And like mm-hmm. Tom Petty's not a dummy. There is no reason why someone in 2017 would come to him to talk about that record unless he knew some of the stuff I wanted to talk about. But he agreed. And then she said that it'll need to be after the tour, the 40th anniversary tour. Um, write to me the first week of October and we'll figure it out. And I wrote on October 2nd, which happened to be the day he died, like within an hour of sending the email. I sent the email to firm up because we had been in touch throughout the intervening months. And I wrote the final email to lock things in. And then an hour later, that's when he died. So people misunderstand quite a bit or have misunderstood in their reading of the book, sort of what they think Tom Petty's predisposition toward it would have been, but also what my motivation was. They think it was all cooked up after he died. It's just sort of like a get rich scam. Right. Which is insane. <laughs> I mean, it is insane, but I guess when somebody dies, like there was a similar fallout with, you know, when David Bowie died mm. and all these accusations of him having assaulted women or uh-huh. harassed women came out and everyone was just like, why are you trashing or why are you spitting on his grave right now? Right. So I think right. posthumously people want to venerate them even more than they would that's, in their life. It's American culture or just human habit, I guess, because people tend to gloss over everything when people die. It seems like I wait, was gonna say? say that about the Confederacy. Too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. The nostalgia industry, um, the rose colored nostalgia industry. I mean, you mentioned the word nostalgia. This whole book is just about writing about cultural heritage, which is such an interesting term in itself. But um, a cultural heritage that you argue is sort of misguided. I mean, did this book, writing this 33 and a third, inform you or teach you anything new about the way that historic memory works? Do you think that there's a different conversation being had in the South now about how we should commemorate things? Oh, I think it's undeniable that there are growing conversations about how we should handle this stuff mm-hmm. within, but I also think there are people that are holding out against that. What did it, I mean, I feel like my understanding of the difference, the radical difference between actual history and memory is something I had a handle on before I went into the project. Otherwise I wouldn't have gone into this project as this project. So I'm not sure how much, intellectually working on this book modified my thinking, but I do know, and there's one moment in the book, which I'm not sure how well it lands. There's a moment in the book where I kind of call myself out for just sliding into these lazy habits of thinking, this sort of, Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that's the heritage. And some in this little church and I like these little battle flags on graves, such a beautiful bucolic little scene. And I find myself understanding in a really sort of thoughtless way, what a lot of people think a lot of it's all about, right? And so in an emotional way, it the working on the book kind of forced me to confront those sort of habits of thought that I had in my life, if right. that makes sense. It's also, and this is, a, I'm paraphrasing someone else, and I can't remember the person's name, something I read at some point, um, actually only the last couple of months, someone wrote that, you know, identity is not something we think about, it's something we think with. 
which I think is an incredibly like nails against the wall. A lot of what I end up coming away from the book thinking about and what I think some of the book is about. That's so fascinating. I know. I know. I wish I could remember who it was who said it. I'll Google it. <laughs> That's okay. Maybe in the show notes, I can find out who said it and mention it. Yeah. So do you feel like, that, does that speak to your experience that you think with your identity instead oh, of thinking yeah, about I mean, it? Oh, yeah. That seems like, well, yeah, personally, I think that I, mm-hmm. I think everyone kind of, not everyone, I think a lot of people need to be on guard with mm-hmm. that. I think that that, you know, I'm from Kentucky. I'm a liberal to lefty to progressive guy in Kentucky with a family who's not, for the most part, any of that. And mm-hmm. so it seems to me that that's really how a lot of people negotiate their political engagements is thinking, you know, with identity, right? And these really strong investments in what they think that identity is supposed to stand for. Um, I know. But I mean, someone could say the same thing about me, I guess. Right. I think it's sort of ironic because I think that the whole term, well, the coinage, the coin term identity politics is often thrown hmm. at the left or yeah. liberal people. Whereas I, I think, I mean, it's obvious based on your book yes. alone that yes. identity politics affects all of us. I mean, on the right as well. In the room, you've got Carol Anderson's White Rage book right there. Yep. I mean, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, no, I entirely agree. I think that's a very good point. It's a very good point. Um, and in a way, I was hoping. Like, people have asked me, who's this book for? And sometimes I don't know. Right. Because I know mm-hmm. that people I the reason it's written with a soft touch. Right. I don't think that it's really it's kind of an invitation for someone who might not agree with, who might love Petty, but who might not agree with my critique of Petty or my mm-hmm. stance on Southern white Southern culture. It's written with a sort of invitation for them to come in and use all this stuff as a way of appraising or reappraising how they think about things while also reading about cocaine and rock and roll. Right. Right. Um, I don't know if any of those people have read it, but it's, I think you're entirely right. It's identity politics is not a cudgel that can only be, you know, be on the left side. Yeah, in many ways, it, it goes the other way. I agree. I mean, so uh, circling back to who you interviewed or who you spoke to for yeah. this project, you talked to other people in the band. Yeah, I talked to Ben Montpinch, the keyboard player, and Mike Campbell, the guitar player. And Mike Campbell was basically his lieutenant throughout his entire career. And both of these guys had always played with Petty. They played with mm-hmm. Petty since the time in Gainesville. Excuse me. And his pre-Heartbreakers band, uh, <laughs> a band called Mud Crutch. I don't know how to describe the name of that band, but it just feels <laughs> Yeah, it does seem pretty mm-hmm. vulgar to me as well. But I mean, I guess my, my question is twofold. One, what was their reaction to the book? And two, do you think that your book would have largely had largely been different had you had the opportunity to actually speak to Petty? I don't know what Mike thinks about the book. I sent them both copies. Um, he has not responded. They're very different people mm-hmm. and they want to talk about very different things. And I think they come across as very different people in the book. They're preoccupied with different aspects of being a musician. So I don't, I'm not even sure if Michael ever read it. I know that Ben Mont has read at least three quarters of it, which that stuff, I guess is off the record. So I'm not going to say exactly what Ben Mont said to me. Except that I'm not afraid of ever bumping into Ben Mont. (laughs) Like I think he's not going to throw anything at me. Um, But yeah, he's a really thoughtful guy. How would it have been different? Like, I think there's, I thought about this, you know, and I, even before I reached out to Petty's camp, I wasn't even sure when I proposed the book that I would try to speak to guys in the band. Mm. You know, and I would tell people that it wasn't really that kind of book. It didn't need right. to be that kind of book. But then the more I thought about it, I thought, well, no, these guys are like Petty's alive. I should, there's no reason not to. Um, 
What I would have asked him, I don't know, because it was much easier to be direct with the other guys than with, I think it would have been Petty. One of the first, I mean, one of the questions I think it would have been very interesting to ask him would have been, you know, when did you know it all went wrong? And just see exactly where he decided to start answering that question. And that would have said a lot about where his thinking was, right? Um, I think the, I would have liked to have gotten his sort of direct commentary Mm -hmm. on recent culture, like recent cultural flare-ups and battles. For the book, I think the most interesting part to explore with Petty's direct input would have been my argument that the post-Southern accents pivot to full moon fever Mm -hmm. um, and et cetera, all that sort of last section of the book, how much that was actually a direct relation or direct reaction to Southern accents. It would have been interesting to get that from him because I think that's really the most circumstantial argument in the book, Mm -hmm. right? I think everything else is... You know, there's arguments against some of the stuff I say in the book, but I think that it would have been really interesting to get his insights into that. But also, this would have been great to hear the guy talk about the record. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know if the book would have been radically different with his input. I waited several months before reaching out. I had a pretty firm idea of what I thought my ideas were going to be. They changed Mm -hmm. and modified as I was writing, obviously, but I had a pretty firm understanding of what. I had a firm grasp of my first ideas before I reached out because I didn't want to show up and have some guy with rock star aura mm-hmm. exert undue influence on me. Talking to him would have been great, but I'm not sure it really would have had much of a impact on the, the sort of social and cultural history stuff. It would have clarified potentially some of the kind of Rashomon elements <clears throat> that exist between Mike and Ben Mont's recollections of the recording. There were sort of minor differences about the making of the record that those guys didn't agree with. Um, but that's it's a long time ago. Do you think has your relationship to his music changed significantly after yeah, I don't writing? Don't listen this? to it anymore. <laughs> you don't. Is it just because you listen to it too much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that I still listen. I mean, well, I mean, I still listen to it a little bit. My kid is four, and he really loves um, what he calls "Strange Tom Petty," which is "Don't Come Around Here No More," <laughs> and he really loves the. Um, the, the live performance on the live box set of Learning to Fly. Mm-hmm. And so he sings along to those two songs a lot, and he likes a few other Petty songs. So those get played. But right now, we're sort of on a Petty diet. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they've all heard yeah. too much of it yeah. at this point. Um, well, I mean, moving forward, if like if you wanted to write another 33 and a third, who would you want to write it about? Maybe that's a dangerous question considering what you just said, because if you write a 33 and a yeah, third, maybe you start to. What, what do I want to stop listening to? <laughs> uh, what I, I initially was, well, honestly, if I was, if you, if someone walked in and said, right now, you need to pick up a book to write about, uh, a record to write about, I would probably pick, um, this is almost the opposite of Tom Petty in some ways. I would pick a book called, we, a record called We All Want the Same Things by this guy named Craig Finn, who's the, oh, uh, the singer and lyricist for a band called The Hold Steady. Oh, yeah, I know The Hold Steady. So The Hold Steady is kind of raucous and beer-soaked and incredibly fun, but he's also incredibly erudite and mm. kind of a singular voice. But on his solo records, that one in particular, and this new one that came out earlier this year called I Want a New War, I just find this sort of warmth of generosity and warmth of feeling incredible. And in many mm. ways, I feel like he's <clears throat> one of the singular voices for like tr- today for Trump's America in a way. Um, and that are really not ripped from the headlines in any sort of didactic way, mm. but just very emotionally attuned to the exhaustion and the fear that a lot of people have right now. Mm. Yeah. 
Maybe you should suggest it. We have a, not to plug, but I mean, yes to plug, but we do have a, a book now called uh, 33 and a Third B-Sides, which is... I know. Yeah. I, know. Um, I did an event in Chicago and one of the guys, my interlocutor at that event was Joe Bonomo, who wrote the ACDC book in the series. And he is a contributor to the, the B-Sides thing. Yeah. So he told me about that. Yeah, I knew it was coming out. It's pretty exciting. Just for context, um, the B-Sides book is all about interviewing former 33 and a Third writers. If they could do it again, who they would write about the second time. Yeah. Um, so it's always interesting to ask Hold Steady versus Tom Petty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are you willing to give up liking them? <laughs> I don't. Well, that's actually, oh man, that's a dangerous, dangerous thing to contemplate. Not right now. No, mm. I'm, not ready, ready to get, I'm not ready to give them up yet. But there's, I mean, I could think of other people too. You know, I think there's a lot of stuff that I wouldn't be fit to write about that would be fun for me to think about. Uh, I guess as a, as a final question, I mean, do you think, looking back on this experience, that it was fruitful writing about a sort of failure of an album over writing about one of his more successful albums, one of the, you know, albums that defined his career? Yes, I think so. Well, my contention is this record did define his career in many yeah. ways because it's funny, <laughs> right? So for the record, let's say that. Uh, I, if I was going to write about another Petty record, I think the only one that I would be drawn to write about would be the thematically coherent and beautiful wildflowers. Mm -hmm. But I think that that would be a really boring record to write about. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm not interested in, I'm not that interested in sort of recording technology and techniques and the sort of like day by day of tracking, right. Which is a little bit in this book, but very minor. Um, I don't really have even a good idea how I would go about writing productively about wildflowers. Other than it's great. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> that doesn't sound very exciting. And it's also really not embedded. At least I've not thought about it in a way where I can discover how it's really deeply embedded in some sort of deeper cultural trend, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of books in the series that are celebrations of the record, but they're a celebration of the record through these explorations of deeper cultural context, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure exactly what the context for Wildflowers would be. You know, I mean, everyone mm -hmm. has a, a different... I don't know, perspective on why they like books in the series, but the ones that I most deeply admire are more broad in their focus than just a celebration of a record. Like, I think Ryan Fertel's Drive-By Truckers book is really good. I love, I don't know how to say his last name, Frank Weisbard's Guns N' Roses record. I book. haven't read that one. I think that's so much fun. It's so <laughs> smart and so much fun. I like that book a lot. I, like everybody else, really love the one about Celine Dion. Yeah. Let's talk about love. Yeah. Just because, it's, as you said, it's it's a wider cultural commentary yeah. about what taste even means. Yeah. No, it's, it's, um, that's a super good book and super smart. Yeah. yeah. Well, great. I'm here again, once again, with uh, Michael Washburn, author of Southern Accents. You can find his book on our website on 33 and a Third. Um, thank you so much for uh, speaking, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. It's great.